0: As we get into our passage this morning, I want you to think about how much of our life is determined by standards and metrics. How much of our life is shaped by orienting ourselves around what is good, what is valuable, what success looks like, where we're headed, these types of things. Uh, And then we lay that, like an overlay, over our lives. It's how we judge ourselves. How am I doing? Where am I going? Where do I need to go next? It's how we look at other people. What do I think of them? Where are they at? Are they in a good place or a bad place? What I want you to discover with me this morning is that when you encounter and understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, it doesn't just change your life underneath those standards. It doesn't just help you to achieve whatever those original metrics were. It replaces the metrics. It changes everything. Now to show you what I mean, if you open up to Galatians chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 10, and it's going to seem tremendously abrupt. In fact, uh, it's so abrupt, it, it sounds like, you know, that it should have been what finished last week and not what starts this week. But I'll show you why we did that. But just just let's read the passage together. And I want you to watch for Paul's life before Jesus and after Jesus. I want you to watch for the standards that drove Paul. And then I want you to notice two specific things, very simple points today. That receiving the gospel or encountering Jesus Christ is one, an interruption, and two, an intervention. Okay? Read with me, verse 10. Paul, writing to the church he planted, churches he planted in Galatia, says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles? I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Only they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for that gift of the Holy Spirit that Nick shared about who, as you promised your disciples, guides us into all truth. We know that it was by your Spirit that these words were written, and so we pray that you would, through that self-same Spirit, help us to understand and apply them today. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that our vision would be radically altered by the gift of Christ, and that we would never be the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just lay a little bit of context again before we get into the significance of what Paul says here. A lot of what happens in this passage is biographical, and it's clearly a defense. Paul is on defense. He's defending himself. It's likely that those who have come into the Galatian church and are starting to influence them have been criticizing Paul and downplaying his significance Now, unlike other letters, like 2 Corinthians, where what's in question is Paul's apostleship, what's in question here is how he fits in with the church in Jerusalem. That's why it seems strange, doesn't it? He takes all this time to say, I've not even really spent much time with the other apostles. You would think if he was trying to defend his authority, he'd go, yeah, we're really close. But he does the opposite, and then he says, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. I only spent 15 days with Peter, and I met James once, and that's it. It's a weird defense, isn't it? But ultimately, it has to do with what he says in the beginning. What he says is, I'm not one of Peter's disciples. I didn't sit at the feet of James. The doctrine that I brought to you was not given to me by them, and therefore it cannot be modified by them or their so-called representatives who were troubling you, because I received it from Jesus Christ. This feels almost blasphemous to say, but straight from the horse's mouth, right? He had had it directly. But if we leave it there, then all we have in this text is a defense of Paul's apostleship. His goal is bigger than that. He is doing that, for sure, but his goal, again is to show us something significant about the gospel, and he says it in verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, what that literally says in the Greek is the gospel is not according to man, or according to the human ways would be a way to translate it. Now, it it doesn't begin with man, and, and that's what he says next. I didn't receive it from any man, but I received it from Jesus, but his point is bigger than that. And as we walk through his biography that he lays out together, you'll see exactly what he means. What we need to see this morning is the divine gospel. The gospel of God. Not according to the ways of human beings. Okay? Now, with that in mind, go back to verse 10. He says, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He makes an opposition here. Please humans, please God. And obviously, there are certain places where you can do both. You can love your neighbor and that can be pleasing for your neighbor. But here, he's creating a dichotomy, a divide, because he recognizes that sometimes we have to choose either or. Sometimes we have to go one way or the other. But let's be really clear here. This isn't just about pleasing this man or that woman or this person or that person. It's pleasing humans. So one of the people that would be included here that Paul is not ultimately trying to satisfy, satiate, and please would be himself. And this is what's changed in Paul's life. Something has happened so significant in his life that the standards That he viewed his life through, which were human in origin, are now irrelevant. Now, if you will, he lives out his life for an audience of one, as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's easy to say. It might even be easy to apply, but it's so much bigger than we think it is. And I'll show you what I mean. Okay? So... Notice what he says about his former life in verse 13. How did he live his life before Jesus? He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then listen to this. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's that's the standards of man, the traditions of my fathers. In fact, there's more going on here. Here is what, according to humankind, looks like. For one, notice it looks like he uh, was advancing. He was making progress. He became, I mean, he was born into Judaism, but He became devoted to Judaism. He applied himself. He did his homework. And he was advancing. But is it that advancement that led to Christ? Is that what happened? Was he a level 73 Jew and then he leveled up and suddenly there's Jesus? No. Here's another one. He says that I advanced in comparison or as opposed to everyone else my own age. You hear the standards there? How do I know how I'm doing? How do I know what I'm worth? How do I know what I deserve? What is my ranking? And he says, look around me. Who compares? But is there some sort of list enumerated in heaven and god's like oh there's somebody who deserves my love no what about his zeal look at what he says about his zeal he says i was extremely zealous devoted to the cause passionate committed going after it with all of his heart is it that energy is it that zeal that led him to christ If you trace a trajectory of Paul's life and you incorporate all those things, how he's doing in comparison to other people, how he was excelling in his studies and in his practice of Judaism, how he was energized and filled with zeal, none of them suddenly develop into Christianity. Paul didn't achieve Christ. He didn't achieve salvation. He didn't earn the revelation. In fact, this biography is a little bit mixed, isn't it? Because what does it say there in verse 13? You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. Now, remember, for Paul at the time, that's just zeal. That's just commitment to God's holiness. These Christian heretics are tainting Judaism, and this needs to be stopped. He would have seen himself in the tradition of Phineas, right? Who ran a copulating couple through with a spear for the holiness of God. That was Paul. He was willing to throw people in prison, put people to death, holding coats at the stoning of Stephen. That was Paul. Now, either way you look at it, where he was wrong or where he was right, the horror of his sins... Or the so called achievements of his righteousness. Either way, Christ is an interruption. In fact, look at how salvation comes to Paul. It's what he tells us next. He says this in verse 15 But when he who set me apart before I was born, before he was zealous, before he was advancing, before any of the peers he compares himself to were born, that's when God made his choice. Look at what it says next. Before he was born, set me apart, and who called me what? By his grace. Who called me by my achievement? Who called me because of my success? Who called me because I finally found what I was looking for? Did Paul discover Christ? No. Instead, Christ called Paul. Paul. Out of grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Apart from Paul's worth and apart from his worthlessness. Apart from his righteous commitment to the traditions of his fathers. And apart from his unrighteous opposition to the God he supposedly worships. Look at what it says next. It says, he called me by his grace, and then verse 16... He was pleased to reveal his son to me. It's not what pleased Paul. It's not according to humans. It's not, you know, what would really make Paul happy? You know what would really fulfill his dreams? It was God's good pleasure to call the Apostle Paul. And it's not that he was pleased with Paul. He was just pleased to offer the gift. This is what changes Paul's life. This is what's so radical about the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. In fact, look at the next line. He says, he set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. Verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know your average faithful Jew would struggle with that idea. In fact, we see it played out in Peter's life. Peter, one day, sitting at home, on his rooftop, waiting for lunch to cook, and suddenly he goes into a trance and he has a vision of a blanket being let down from heaven like a picnic. But the food of the picnic is all the things he's not allowed to eat as a Jew. Unclean animals. And he hears a voice, rise, Peter, kill, eat. And Peter says, no way. I'm a faithful Jew. I don't eat those foods. And the vision finishes with a voice saying, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. And then suddenly he comes out of the vision, probably thinking, what was that about? And there's a knock at his door. And a Roman, by the name of Cornelius, has set a constituency to invite Peter to his house to tell him about Jesus. And I will remind you, go back and read it. Acts chapters 10 and 11. Peter has a hard time. In fact, the first thing he says as he comes into Cornelius' house and addresses all of his family and friends is, now you know that no self-respecting Jew would be here. It's the first thing out of his mouth. In fact, he brings some friends to operate as witnesses because he knows that the church at home is going to hear about this. And even when God shows up in the preaching and all of that audience is suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit... And Peter himself has to say, if God gave them the Spirit like they did us, who would keep them from being baptized? What happens when he gets home? His church puts him on trial. Why in the world did you go into a Gentile's house? And he says, here's what God did, you're going to have to judge God. Now as we'll see in just a few weeks, Peter still struggled with that idea after that. But remember, Peter is just a backwoods fisherman. He was a Jew, but he was no Paul the Apostle. He was no Saul of Tarsus. Saul who was trained under the feet of Gamaliel. Such a significant rabbi that people still read the works of Gamaliel today. It's like saying one of us was one of Jonathan Edwards' students, or trained in evangelism by D.L. Moody. He went to the best religious mind of his day. He was a Pharisee, committed to keeping the law, keeping himself separate. In fact, most scholars believe he was even a part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders who ruled over Jerusalem collectively as an organization. That was Paul. And God called him and sent him where? Not to his own people, but to the nations, to the Gentiles. But the truth is, Paul knows himself after he encounters Jesus Christ that he was saved apart from his Judaism. He was saved apart from his zeal, apart from his resume. And he's freed up then to offer the same free gift to all those unworthy people of the nations who have never walked in the ways of God, who did not have the scriptures. When you read those verses over, and when Paul says, here's what happened. Here's the one conclusion you can't draw. That Paul finally achieved what he was after. Or that Paul got what he deserved. It was a gift. But here's the thing. The problem is, oftentimes, even if we've had that same encounter, we bring Jesus back into the standards. We bring what God has done in His grace back into the according to man ways. We bring our comparison to other people into the church. We bring our zeal as a badge of our righteousness into the church. We think, all right, I knew how to advance in Judaism, now I'm a Christian, I know how to advance in Christianity. But Paul's life is completely different at this point. I, I, I mean, there's so many ways this is the case, and we'll turn to another passage to see this, but I want to show you one that's right here in the text. What does he say there in verse 17? So he says, preach the Gentiles, he says, I did not com- immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem to those who were apostles. In fact, if you keep reading here, we find him all over the world, everywhere but Israel. He's in Damascus. He's in Arabia. He's in Syria. He's in Sicilia. He takes a two-week vacation to Jerusalem in the middle. That's it. Remember, Jerusalem is the heart of the world in the Jewish mind, the center of where God's presence is. That's where the temple is, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the festivals. And Paul is absent. Not only that, but this is how Paul went about Judaism. He went, all right, where's the upper echelon? Who's the top dogs? Who are the leaders of this thing? I want to know them. I want to be them. Is that what he does as a Christian? He goes into the wilderness. He goes and carries the message to Cecilia. He knows who the 12 apostles are. He knows them by name. He knows their reputation. He does not have that impulse that says, i got to get to know them. I need to get them to sign off on who I am. Something else is driving his life. That's the question. And he tells us exactly what it is in verse 10. He says, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Something in his life has changed. He's no longer playing to his standards or the standards of his times and cultures. But what does he say as he continues? He says, am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. That changes things. In fact, it's more than this because it's not just about doing what Jesus wants. And I'll show you what I mean. Here, he only deals with his biography in terms of his defense as an apostle, as a so-called student of Peter, as, as being, you know, a, a representative of Jerusalem who therefore, you know, stands under these other people from Jerusalem. But look at what he says in Philippians. Just turn in the New Testament a little bit further, past Ephesians to Philippians. Look at what he says in verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now again, what does he mean flesh here? He means the human. He says, According to human ways, according to human standards, I have a lot of things to be confident about. Look at his list. This is his spiritual resume. He says, If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of what of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not just chasing, pleasing Jesus, knowing him, being in relationship with him, understanding. In other words, there's something about what God has done in Jesus Christ for Paul that is enough. No more need to strive to achieve or to accomplish or to prove In fact, notice what he says next. He says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. It doesn't just achieve Paul's standards, it changes them, it reorients them. Now, I want to be really clear here. If we just stop there, then we do rightly understand how great the gift God offers is in Jesus Christ a righteousness that's not our own, freely given at the cost of another an invitation for forgiveness and salvation that we do not deserve and cannot repay. But that, if we stop there, stops short of what the gospel is and it definitely stops short of what happens in Paul's life. Let me use zeal as an illustration. Sometimes when we hear the gospel, when we understand the gospel, sometimes when we go go throughout our life, it's as if... We won the lottery and never have to work again. It's like the get out of jail free card in Monopoly. It's like, oh, now nothing is expected of me, nothing is required. Take the idea of zeal. Paul says, before Jesus, I was extremely zealous. After Jesus, was he lazy? He was. He was even more zealous. In fact, look at Paul's presentation of the gospel in Titus. Again, moving to the right through your New Testament. All of the New Testament letters that begin with T are side by side. So it's the Thessalonians, the Timothys, and at the very end is Titus chapter 2. This is one of my favorite summaries of what God has done in Jesus Christ. If you want to explain to somebody the gospel, this is one of the clearest and fullest versions in the New Testament. But I want you to notice what it says here. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. Now you say, what's the difference? The difference is Paul was zealous for himself, zealous for his achievement, zealous for his notoriety, for his reputation, zealous for his ability before people and before God. But now he's zealous for the good itself. That's the difference. Freed from the standards, freed unto love. I'm kind of spoiling the plot here. It's going to take us a few months to get through Galatians. But that's the message he has for the Galatians, too. He says, do not use your freedom as a liability, as a way to the flesh, but enslave yourselves to one another in love. So Paul's standards change because, again, the gospel is not just an interruption, although it is that. It is an intervention. It changes your mission statement. It removes your trajectory. And yeah, Paul's life changes and his zeal is greater. For Judaism, he was willing to kill. For Christianity, he was willing to be killed. He was the persecutor. And he became one who endured all sorts of persecution. That's a change. The Paul who was about pride and respect embraced shame. Being an outsider, a castaway. That's why he says here, who am I trying to please? But the place, the thing that that stems from is understanding what God has done in Jesus Christ. When you get the gift when the penny drops and you realize what God has offered us in Jesus Christ, it won't just ease you from your righteous efforts. It won't just unburden you from the guilt you feel in past sins. It will empower you to a completely new life. Grace doesn't lead to less. It always leads to more. I don't know a greater semi-modern day religious committed Pharisee than John Wesley. You know what his extracurricular activity was in college? The Holiness Club. Him and his friends committed to holding one another accountable to not break any of the laws of the Bible and to live it out. You know what he decided to do with his life? He decided to be a missionary. And so as he came over to the United States, he's sitting on a boat and there's some Moravians also Christians, on this boat and a storm hits. John Wesley is filled with fear, literally hiding in his cabin, praying to survive. You know what the Moravians are doing? They're having a worship concert out on the deck in the middle of the storm. And he started thinking to himself, something's wrong here. And as he started to explore what was wrong, what he had missed, he encountered the grace of Christ. This guy who had devoted hours of his life to study, to righteous living, worked every muscle of his self-control and discipline so that he would keep the law of God, encounters Christ and it changes his life. And it did change some significant things. Do you know where John Wesley's first public place of preaching was after his conversion? He was standing on the tombstone of his father. Do you know Why? because he wasn't licensed to preach in his city. And the church wouldn't let him use the pulpit. And if you read his journals, he always felt disgusted by outdoor preaching, and he did it the rest of his life. He felt like it was honorless, disrespectful. But he set that aside. Late in his life, in the last decade, he preached sometimes ten times a week, traveling more than 80 miles a day by horseback, from place to place, circuit riding. It wasn't less. The love of Christ compelled him. It was more. This intervention, again, it frees us up to do the good for a good reason and not a selfish one. And I think we've all experienced this, haven't we? that one of the reasons we do the right thing is because we want to be the right type of person. In fact, maybe you can remember younger where you, you tried to put the fleece out there of doing something really sacrificial so that people would see it. You know, maybe you waited until there was an audience. Or maybe you were like, you know what, I really want a bike for Christmas. So without asking, I'm just going to go rake the leaves. And then you don't get the bike and you're like, what the heck? Do you think Paul, in what he's talking about here, do you think as he was stoned and dragged out of the city, do you think he was still in that place of thinking, come on, where's the blessing? He already has it. That's how sufficient God's gift in Christ is. He is content. And therefore freed up to put everything on the table, every ounce, every effort, but not to earn One of the ways that I think it's well put is by thinking about the seven-day week that God set up, right? You read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates on six days and he rests on the seventh. And so the Jews had their worship on the seventh day, Saturday. Why is it that we worship on Sunday? Because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose. But there's also a sense, there's a propriety, there's an appropriateness in that. Because we are no longer working to receive our rest, we work from it. And you all know, in the most pragmatic and obvious way, you get better work when you're well-rested. I want to show you the most significant transition here. This is, this is how you know. So he says... I didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem. I went to Peter, he didn't summon me, right? I just went to visit him, we got to know each other, I was only there for two weeks, I saw James one time. He goes all over the world, Syria, Sicilia, and he'll go a lot further, eventually he'll traipse across most of Rome. Some suggest that he might be the most traveled man of his time, because of just following his path in the New Testament. But notice this in verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The original church. The ones who knew Jesus in the flesh. They don't know Paul. And he's fine with that. But, verse 23, they were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us now is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What was known was that Paul was different, that Paul was changed. Even if they were suspicious of it for a while, after a while they had to go, this is not the same guy. He was the persecutor. But now he's preaching the message. In fact, notice this, verse 24, And they glorified God because of me. I don't know if we always are prescient enough to understand this, but the default drive of the human heart is to live for glory. You may have a different metric than I do. Your glory may be defined by these political platforms, or by these acts of goodness, or by association with these things, or by wealth, or status, or success, or a thousand other things. We don't all have the same metric, but they are all human-made. but Paul goes about his life in a way that God gets the glory and that's what ties the interruption and the intervention together when Paul looks at his salvation the fact that he knows Christ the fact that he's been reunited with God who gets the credit who does he boast in who does he glory in? Who does he thank? Paul doesn't see himself as traipsing into heaven waiting for God to bestow a medal upon him and honor him for his good job. God gets the glory for that. And what about for his life after that point? What is he living for now? For the glory of God. So that he wouldn't just be able to boast in Christ for his salvation but that his whole life would be a reason for boasting in the glory of God. That's the transition. That's the change. And let me just remind you, that's what's lost in the very beginning. You were made by God for his glory. To affirm what he called beautiful. To affirm what he said was right was right to live as his representative on earth, ruling and reigning in his place. As the image of God. What does an image do? It images. But in the garden, we chose our own ways. And since then, we've been building statues of ourselves. Resumes of ourselves presenting ourselves and demanding that everybody pay attention to us because we have earned or achieved. And so we take the things where we don't live up to our standards and we downplay them or we excuse them or we put them on other people's shoulders and we blame, right? You don't even get to page two of the Bible till that stuff starts happening. But that's the glory of the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're fully acquainted with the fact that you don't deserve it or if you think that you are on your way to finding it, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you think that you just have to keep discovering and that you just have to work a little harder and you just have to figure out the right mechanics and God will reveal himself to you, let me just remind you that God is not the one who's lost. And it's good to seek God. But it's not the seeking that will find him. It's God seeking that finds us. And I know it's a paradigm shift. It's like moving, you know, from Newtonian physics to Einstein relativity. It doesn't make any sense till you make the leap and then you look back and you go, Oh, okay. But also for us who are Christians this morning. Do you see the interruption? Can you see where even though maybe you had the most basic of testimonies, you grew up within the church, do you see where God's grace is operating? Because it's there. And it wasn't because you memorized all those Awana verses that Christ saved you. It's a gift. And because it is the greatest gift, It instills us with a gratitude and a freedom to live fully and completely, unrestrainedly, unabashedly to the glory of God. It doesn't just fulfill our metrics. It doesn't just compensate for where we failed based on our own standards. It replaces them. Sometimes it reverses them. Where we once saw honor, we now embrace shame. Where we once fought to be at the top we now want to be at the bottom but ultimately ultimately what it does is it reorients to the one who is glorious the one who is worth living for the one who is worth boasting in the one who is enough and sufficient for us the one who we could spend the rest of our lives living to demonstrate and display his beauty to the world without regret Let's pray. Father, I pray for open eyes and open hearts, that we would be able to see that our relationship with you is not just a trace of our development of our religious history you invaded and interrupted our lives before we were born you took care of our salvation you became a man you bore our sins before we sinned them and you've been at work drawing us to yourself opening the door to us stirring in our hearts Even the word we read this morning in Galatians, that's part of your work of salvation. Not just a record of the God who speaks, but a way that God speaks today. And I pray that the penny would drop for all of us, Lord, that in any place where we're still obsessed with or chained by the standards of ourselves or those around us, stuck in the rat race, Keeping up with the Joneses, trying to earn what cannot be earned and can only be received. Or where we've been acquainted with your gift and we're just retired. Life is over. God, just show us again. David prays in the Psalms, restore to us the joy of our salvation, inspire us and empower us like Paul to count all things as a loss for the gain of knowing Christ, fully, deeply, more and more with every day. May we live unto your glory, our very lives as an act of worship, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable because it is our reasonable response paul says it's only natural be at work in us this morning show us where you're calling us decentralize us uproot us transform us we want to be your servants all these things in Jesus' name.